0: Today, I'm speaking with Agnes Callard. She's a philosophy professor and academic book author. But as well as doing ivory tower philosophy, Agnes also writes all sorts of interesting stuff in the popular press. Today... We talk about the difference between being philosophical and being political. We talk about why you can't trust philosophers, and about her new project in which she explains how Socrates discovered human thinking. I'm Cliff Mark, and this is Good in Theory. Agnes Callard, welcome to Good in Theory. In Plato's Apology, Socrates said that philosophers should lead a strictly private life and stay completely out of public life. Why does Socrates think it's so important for philosophers to stay as far as they can from the public sphere?
1: So, um, you know, one interesting thing is that he does say something like that in the Apology. In the Gorgias, he says, I'm the only real politician in Athens. (laughs) Um, so, uh, so we have to square those two texts, but I think what he means in the apology is, look, I haven't come around, like, um, I don't know, advising the council, like, you know, making, um, suggestions in, uh, um, in our political deliberative bodies. Um, and, um, you know, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that in Athens, those sorts of Activities, people were let us say highly accountable,
0: right. in the sense
1: that um, you know you could experience retribution uh, for having suggested something that didn't work out. There were actually legal measures to um, that the, like that people could potentially sue you for having giving bad advice. So that's one thing Socrates could be thinking of there quite concretely is like in Athens you better be careful. Um, uh, but I think that. Um, the other thing, I think that's sort of less, somewhat less concretely, um, Socrates wanted to call into question sort of people's most basic assumptions about how they are, how they ought to live. And a lot of politics involves people holding fixed a lot of those assumptions. And saying, look, should we go to war against the Spartans or not, given that it's really important to have glory? And we need to like be better than them, uh, and then we also need to be better than the Persians. And like, how do we manage the situation? And suppose you're like you're, you know, your thought, your Socrates, and you're like, well, what is better? Um, <laughs> 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 it, then that, in a way, that's 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 apolitical because it is refusing to take certain kind of basic moves for granted.
0: Okay, so Socrates didn't want to accept the fixed points that everyone in politics had to accept. He wanted to ask more open, abstract questions, like, what is better? But why does he have to stay away from politics to do it?
1: Well, that's why... Yes, in another sense, I think Socrates is very political and considers himself very political. Namely, all he does every day is exhort his fellow citizens to virtue, right? And engage in public, in conversations about things that are of the collective interest. Um, so it's that we have institutions that are predicated on answers to those questions, and those institutions are going to feel threatened by that kind of activity.
0: By too, mu- too much questioning?
1: Yeah, by questioning of precisely those things that are held fixed by the institution. Like, like if Socrates were like, maybe Sparta ought to beat us, because maybe they're better than us. You know, that, like there are suggestions in right. Plato that in that in some ways he did think Sparta was better. Um, right, so
0: this is, I mean, this is like a, um, I can see how he might be doing political philosophy there, right? He might be taking this philosophical attitude and asking these questions about what is the best way of life? Should we live like Spartans, etc.? But, I mean, I feel like he means something else um, when he says the philosopher has to stay out of politics. And I also think that, when people today talk about things getting political, um, they, they mean some kind of distinct activity than abstractly questioning what is the best form of life. And I wonder if you get that sense, and that might be something that Socrates might have gotten in trouble with.
1: I think that there are ways in which like, the battle lines are drawn, both in, within a given society, um, when things aren't going great, and between one society and another. Uh, and there are, like, groups that form on the basis of shared interests, and they can then have a sense of opposition to other groups. Um, And in that situation, like, one thing that's very characteristic of that situation is whether or not you think some way of acting is good or bad is dependent on whether or not you belong to the group or to the other group, right? So if you take, like a procedural consideration, like, should um, a president be able to appoint a judge to the Supreme Court very shortly before re-election? You'll find that people's views on that question depend on, like, which party they're in and which party's in power, right? And so, like...
0: Are you saying that their decision on which party to belong to doesn't depend on their answer to that question? (laughs) <laughs>
1: it does not. so so the point is I think that's that's a lot that captures a lot of what people mean by something's being political it's that like mm-hmm. your answers to even something like a procedural question will actually depend on whether or not your party is benefited by one answer versus another because you see there as being a fundamental opposition
0: so keeping on this theme of the difference between philosophy and politics I'm seeing two things that are characteristic of politics. So, one, there are practical consequences to how we answer questions in politics. People will benefit and they'll be harmed. But the second characteristic of politics that I'm seeing is that it's a kind of team game. And a lot of that game is just articulating different groups and sorting people into friends and enemies. So, do you think that this is what's essential and characteristic about politics as opposed to philosophy.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah, so I would say, like, let me add one more thing that I think is essential to politics. Strategic communication. Okay. So, like, when people in politics are talking, they're not speaking fundamentally with a view to the truth. They're speaking with a view to bringing something about um, in some audience, right? And it may be often it's setting up an allegiance or declaring a disallegiance, Um, and, um, you know, we are told to be very skeptical of the speeches of politicians, right? Where, um, this is the thing personally I find the most difficult about politics and Mm -hmm. most alienating is strategic communication, which is very, very hard for me to, uh, accept that I'm being communicated that way. I just don't hear communication that way. And so like my response is like a very naive one. Uh, anyway, so I, I think that's really important. But then I think if you want to explain why strategic communication exists, yeah, I think it's because um, uh, people, the way politics works is that people have to find allegiances. That, and so the, the, uh, the, the, the project of generating allegiances, then somehow, for reasons I'm not totally clear on, um, you know, ends up creating like a, a conflicting groups. Uh, that is, groups that are opposed to one another.
0: So you think the point of politics is to generate allegiances, rather than to say, like I don't know, uh, protect us from outsiders or feed everyone or I don't know, live in security oh, I don't numbers? Think or it's the point of it, okay?
1: Not and it's not at all the point of it. it mm-hmm. It's just how it characteristically goes. Um, and I think that when we when there's a strong outside threat, those allegiances dissolve um, because we get the all of us allied against our enemy, uh-huh. right? Um. So, um, you know, the fewer, the less we can see ourselves as having enemies out there, maybe the yeah. more pressure there is to be enemies amongst one another. Um, um, but I'm not, I'm not sure why uh, this structure of um, opposing groups forms, you know, if I, if I had to give like, what would Socrates say? Yeah. He might say this. He might say, as a culture, as a society we can see that there are certain fundamental questions about how to live that we have not answered. And so what we do is we polarize into groups that um, grasp, like, one of the various truths um, and we fight each other as a way of staging our own psychological ignorance. So if you take abortion, right, it's like that's one thing where we really fight about that, right? People get really upset about it. And it's like, You know, we just, it's clearly, there's a real deep question here that we have not worked out. Um, Women have certain rights over their own bodies uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, like, you know, killing a human being is wrong. And then it's like, well, is it a human being? That question is clearly unclear. We don't know the answer, right? And so we don't know the answers to these questions, and so we're fighting about them. That would be one thought.
0: Okay. And it seems to me that okay, we're fighting about them, but Socrates would continue to say just that we don't know the answer to that question, let's keep asking it, right?
1: Right. Socrates would think we should actually um, be inquiring into it instead of fighting.
0: Do we have to choose?
1: I believe we do. Um, Okay. So, I mean, I think Socrates would think fighting is probably better than ignoring it, so fighting is actually not the worst thing we could be doing. Um, But my own feeling is that... um, There's a really interesting place in the psychological spectrum where one can engage with kind of like these deep ethical questions and it isn't um, being completely calm and rational and detached. I think if you were calm and rash totally calm and rational and detached and dispassionate, then I would say maybe you're talking about a different question or maybe you can't hear what we're saying. We're talking about like human life and people's rights over their bodies. This is like really important stuff. So if you're not like a little bit emotional then you're not thinking about the thing I'm thinking about. Right. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, if we're, like, screaming and throwing at each other and I'm, like, I'm not listening to you and every time you say anything, it's in bad faith and you can't understand me and you're not even trying to – blah, 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 we can't get anywhere, right? Right. So I think we have to be somewhere in the middle between those two things and that's – my, my own view is that the big problem in our society, it, the biggest problem is that we – that range is being compressed um, that ability to be sort of emotionally worked up enough to be talking about the issues that really matter, but not so worked up that we can't talk to each other. Right. That's the difficult thing.
0: That is so interesting. So you're saying that we can't be completely emotionally disengaged or else we're not really talking about the right things. But if we get too engaged, then that can begin to block philosophical conversation. I'm very interested in this encounter between philosophy and politics that we're talking about. So can you tell me about any examples where taking a philosophical approach didn't go well because it crashed into politics in some way?
1: Yeah, I'm trying to think. Like, I, I, you know, I, I think I stay away from it in large part for this reason. I mean, maybe an example of it is this thing I just brought up with should the president, like, be allowed to appoint a judge um uh in when he is you know shortly before re-election like it's like i thought of that like that's an interesting question actually i think it's it's i don't it's not obvious to me what the answer to that question is and read like reading you know the various like um people talking about that when it has come up recently like it's almost like there's like I can tell there's, like, two things going on. Like, someone is sort of thinking a little bit about that question. But then, like, a lot of it is, like, like, but, hey, like, last time you wouldn't let us do it. Right. And it's, like, from my point of view, that's just totally irrelevant to the question. Like, and so, so, so somehow from a political point of view, it's extremely relevant that um, last time around you didn't let us do it. Right. From a philosophical point, for, for me, it's not relevant at all. Like the question is, what is the right thing to do, and then we should do the right thing, no matter what we anyone did before, right? So, well, from, the right from the thing to do might
0: po- be follow precedent and have some kind of reciprocity, but that would be moving the question to another domain, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So,
1: like, so like it, one could have then one could be deliberating then over a meta principle, right, right. and say, um, um, but. Um, but instead, like what I feel like it's, it's not that see that that reading you just had would be like my kind of reading of what's going on, where that would be naive and wrong. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it, I think that the right thing, like and I say this only after like talking to my husband a lot who explains this stuff to me is like it's like, look what's going on? there's a certain kind of like revenge or something or, or punishment or justified punishment, or like I, uh-huh. I don't to say revenge sort of makes a judgment along one line but it's like everybody's just trying to get the advantage of their group and like and like i think that like one group can see that it's rhetorically in a very good position right now because it's like hey you guys did this like it's almost there's almost a glee in it uh-huh. right and so to me that whole way of interacting is um it's very strange that people are willing to do that in public and be open about it. Like I might be, I might do that like with my husband, if I'm like angry at him Uh and I'm like passive aggressive and like, I'm, you didn't wash the dishes. So, you know, but like, I wouldn't, I'd be embarrassed about that. Right. But like politics is like when we're not embarrassed about that. Um, uh, and we just talk in those ways. And, and part of what makes us not embarrassed is that we're surrounded by our group and all of our group tells us that we're right. Uh, that's interesting.
0: What do you think is more shameless politics or philosophy?
1: Uh, They're shameless in different ways. Philosophy is also shameless. Um, So I think that politics is shameless because people are getting angry in public, getting kind of like um, vengeful in public. And in general, we actually really frown upon vengeance, but we permit it in the context of politics. And so you'll just see, like, if you look at, like, you know, um, really cruel and mean tweets, they're almost all political um because yeah. it's like if you were to just start being cruel and mean to someone about their weight or their appearance or whatever like people would be like that's terrible don't be like that but as long as it's about politics you're allowed to be a jerk um so i think that um uh, i think that for some reason in the political sphere it becomes a certain f- kinds of bad behavior become permissible in philosophy what's permissible is ignorance And a kind of really shameful kind of ignorance. Like, don't you have a basic clue about how your life should go? (laughs) Like, you're an adult, right? And you don't know, um, like, what it is to be a good person. Like, you actually really don't know. So you're literally walking through your life every minute having no clue what you're doing like that. You should be embarrassed. Um, And that kind of shamelessness, I do think, is characteristic of philosophy.
0: Okay. Just to make sure I got that. The shamelessness of philosophy is that, well, philosophers are shameless because... Normal human adults are supposed to know what they're doing in life and have some clue about right and wrong. But philosophers just shamelessly walk around saying, huh, what's right and wrong? What does being good even mean? So when we're talking about the shameless philosopher, we're talking about someone like Socrates.
1: Yeah, or me. You know, in both of these cases, right? These are really the way we are like the the thing that comes out in politics is a way human beings genuinely are and genuinely it's a way that they interact with their loved ones when they're in a fight. Um, so it's not a lie. It's a truth, but it's just that it's being exposed. Um, and I think in philosophy, yeah, it's like a certain kind of cluelessness about, um, how to live your life and like how to organize um, uh, organize your life. And, um, and we normally cover it up. And so it's a very strange person who is willing to expose that.
0: Yeah. Philosophers are really strange sometimes. And sometimes, as Socrates shows, I think, uh, they can be really infuriating to people. In your New York Times column, the should we cancel Aristotle piece, you talk about how charged political situations, I take it as polarized political situations, can kind of suck people into their field of influence, even against their best intentions. Can you tell me about any examples that you know of where philosophers get unwittingly or unwillingly drawn into politics, aside from Socrates?
1: Yeah, I mean, it it happens to me sometimes, like I'm pretty good at avoiding it. And yet um, I do think that there are certain things where people rally around them with particular efficiency. Um, And um, I also think that at a given time, certain issues are like in one of my tweets, I just use the word racism as a pop that like that in effect, something where you might illegitimately accuse your opponent of it as a way of saying that they're bad. Right. But like, we live in such, you know, fraught times with respect to that word, that the very thought that any accusation of it could be like ill-founded, I think was offensive. Um, uh, (laughs) So like, that's Um, but they're like, as I do the unions, right. So, uh, so how long,
0: how long have you had your Twitter account, Agnes? Uh, You should know better by now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, two years. So not that long.
0: I'm Um, wondering if this naivete isn't some irony, but.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, no, I mean, I generally do quite well. Like I, that is, that is, I don't, people don't tend to get very angry with me. Um, I don't tend to make this mistake a lot, but I do every once in a while I do. Um, so I must have some sense of how people are going to interpret me. Otherwise I'd be making it all the time.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, okay. So this is, this is one thing you've, you've managed to, uh, avoid a lot of this kind of trouble. Um, and, and that's, that reminds me of this. I think, I think it was your piece called, uh, how to politicize the classroom or something. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. And in this piece you talk about how, you don't want to, there's a lot of requests that you get from students to maybe declare allegiance, join some kind of political cause, show up at a demo. I don't know, lots of things yeah. that lots of instructors do. And yeah. you say that you try to avoid doing it, but not only that, you feel it's your duty as a philosopher to avoid doing it. Can you explain uh, why, why that is, why you have to, it's not just that you don't want to get involved in the fight, but it's the right thing to do to avoid politics in your role.
1: Yeah. um, And as I say, in the Socratic sense of politics, I'm the most political person there is. (laughs) Um, um, (laughs) um, But um, um, I think that, um, I think that what they're looking for in those cases is something like prove that you're a morally good person by declaring your allegiance to a certain cause. And why, why would they want that from me? Why would they ask that of me? Because they're worried about the cause. They don't know whether it's good. They don't know whether they believe in it. But maybe if I believed in it, then that would, they would have like my imprimatur. It would be like philosophy approved. And I think it's pretty important that they not be philosophy approved in the sense that, like that That desire is kind of a desire to have someone else do your thinking for you. And like, I think with these kind of, you know, causes, part of the reason why we get so worked up and angry is that we don't know whether we're right or not. And that feeling of anger and frustration is the feeling that I ought to be able to be producing a better argument than I am. And my job is to help people produce the better argument, not to make them feel comfortable that they were just fine with what they could do.
0: So does that have to do with your particular role as a philosophy teacher vis-a-vis your students, or is this a more general stance? Like, what is the scope of the need to not let people, uh, not to agree with people in case, they, in case they trust you instead of thinking for themselves?
1: Yeah, I don't know that I've thought, thought it out up to every possible, you know, point. Um, I mean, I tend to think that my relationship with my students really ought to be philosophical in the sense that we ought to be able to inquire into the question, right? And so the best way to inquire into any question is for one of us to not presuppose that a certain answer is correct and to be questioning the other one who might hold that answer. There's a sense in which philosophy just doesn't really leave room for allegiances. that's with respect to any questions that we might be inquiring into. Now, uh, you know, I think like, am I going to say, oh, no philosophers should ever take part in political demonstrations? Like, no, I, I don't think it's my place to tell. I don't think that, like, for by the same by the same argument that I just gave you, I don't think that I can solve other people's moral deliberations for them, so I can't tell those other philosophers what to do any more than I can tell my students what to do, right? Um I can just sort of explain what makes sense to me and why reasons for why I do what I do. Uh, and I, I also can't, so I can't rule out the possibility that there would be some moral question that I would feel very strongly about in a sense that feeling like I needed to do something. And then I would participate in some action that I thought would be efficacious towards that end. That might happen. Um, so so but I th- I guess I guess the thing I think is important is to resist doing those things on the basis of sort of a request or a pressure where I think that that pressure is like almost like a desire on the part of those pressuring me to themselves be reassured that they're doing the right thing.
0: Okay. So does that have to do with your particular role as a philosophy teacher vis-a-vis your students or is this a more general stance, right? Is it it an objection to allegiance in politics in general, or is it just because you feel that in this case, your students are asking you for guidance and they're unsure of the question and you want them to keep questioning?
1: So I don't think it's important. I, I don't think it's appropriate for my students to ask me for that kind of help. That is for the kind of help um i i think i might want to give it anyway like there might be a situation where i'm like hey our country's in this kind of crisis and here's a thing that we like, it's not like i don't have moral views right and so um i might think i need to do something and then i'll do it um but um um i think there's at least sometimes a bit of a conceit that like as an educator it's my obligation to like stand up for what's right or something where what that really means is like is like use um my authority to deceive people into thinking that I have knowledge that I don't have, <laughs> that would be immoral, right? Um, so it, it, there's a way in which it's a kind of using me or myse- me using myself as a tool. Um, so that that's really what I resist, but not like engaging in political action that you think is important to do. Like as long as you're not doing it for symbolic value because you think you doing it is gonna like set some kind of, um, you know, example. Um, then I think it's fine.
0: Okay. So the philosopher can engage in politics, but not qua philosopher. Is that, am I getting that right? So you're not saying that it's wrong to have allegiances and commitments and care about stuff, which I like, I can't hardly imagine a human who wouldn't. Um, It's just that when somehow, if you are using your status as a philosopher, And trying to deploy that politically, that would be, that would be the problem.
1: Yeah, I think there's something problematic about having status as a philosopher. Like, philosophers shouldn't have status. You know, like economists can have status; they know some stuff. And then it's kind of complicated, and we can't follow it. Physicists, (laughs) right? They know stuff. Um, Philosophers are really good to talk to, Um, but you shouldn't trust us. Some of us don't believe the external world exists. Right? Some of us believe there are true contradictions. These are not people you want to trust. <laughs> They're not people who, if they do that thing, you should do that thing. Um, that's just the wrong way of thinking about a philosopher. I think we're very useful, but we're not useful in that way. You can't outsource your thinking to us.
0: Well, then what good are you? I mean, we can't get you to think for us. We can't trust you. Why do we need philosophers?
1: For talking to. But we're good because um, We're good because you don't know what you think, and we can help you figure that out.
0: You seem to like keeping questions open, discussing them without asserting your own position, seeing where it goes. And this is a very Socratic characteristic, but a lot of people don't like to be questioned all the time, right? A lot of people just prefer to agree, and a lot of people really hated Socrates. So I guess I'm asking if people find your philosophical openness and refusal to pin yourself down to a position annoying.
1: People are often extremely annoyed by me. I don't think it's mostly (laughs) like, because I'm, um, uh, you know, asking, it is asking questions, but it's something more specific, which is that I'm quite tyrannical in conversation. So I have Mm -hmm. a tendency to monopolize the conversation and to decide like, this is what we're going to be talking about. Like, I'm kind of the teacher all the time. Uh, So that's annoying Even worse. Yeah. Yeah. It's like an annoying personality trait and I don't think Socrates really in a way was like that. So it's not, I don't know that I think there are plenty of philosophers who are like really good listeners and stuff and I'm not one of them. Um, So I would say that there's that with respect to politically, like I do think that people, my agent told me that like, you know, when we were like, working on the proposal and stuff for my book and selling the book. And she was talk- talking to editors. She's like, they all want to know where are you politically? Uh, and they're like, they're fine with it, you know, but they want to know. And I'm like, what, what a weird thing to want to know about me. Right. Everyone like, wants to editors. know. And they and what and, side and are you like, on? Agnes. They're like, you've, you're cl- you've clearly made it very mystic. Like, this is what the like, like, they feel like you've you've thrown a lot of mystique around this, and you've made <laughs> it like as though, like, there's some deep secret that I'm hiding, right? I'm like the least secretive, least hiding person. Basically, everything I think you already know, right? I'm I'm, I'm I'd say everything I think, but yet, there's they're convinced that there's a secret that I've just, yeah. and I've cleverly hidden it and they want to know what it is. So there is a, this thing. And I think it's related to like why people want to know the gender of your baby, if you're pregnant, cause they're, cause they've divided the world into kinds and they're like, what kind is your kid going to be? You know, I'm like, what kind are you? Yeah. And then, and then they feel like you're just hiding that you're, you know, it's like, what if you just didn't have a gender or something like that could happen. Right. Then you wouldn't be hiding it. Um, so, yeah. So I think that there is this thing of people who are trying to like sort of classify you in some way and then having trouble classifying you, but mostly an interpersonal interaction. That's not the problem that I have. It's the being uh, (laughs) annoying and like uh, monopolizing the conversation.
0: The column about, should we cancel Aristotle? And you say we shouldn't cancel Aristotle. Right. Even though he has really repellent, politically repellent views. Yes. That might even be. Probably aren't dangerous. And I think you say we shouldn't cancel him because like he's not our enemy. He's not dangerous. Right? Yeah. Um, so who should we cancel?
1: Yeah, great question. Who should we cancel? No one ever asks that. Um, yeah, you no, know, apparently um somebody um who teaches ancient philosophy uh, Email me that his like school or group like um was inspired by my thing and they did a whole uh, like debate thing on should we cancel ancient philosophy and they voted and it was like I think like like only thirty percent voted to cancel all of ancient philosophy <laughs> so I wrote him back that I was very relieved um 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 so one thing that's interesting about like like did Athens cancel Socrates like right and I think the answer is no what happened? They killed Socrates. He turned out to be uncancelable, right? Cause he was like, <laughs> so he was like, you ask me, can't you just go away from here and stop talking to people? And I'm like, no, no, I will never stop. I will go down to Hades and I will refute people there. Right. Um, so there are some people who, um, like are just kind of going to keep doing what they're doing no matter what context they're in. Um, and, um, You know, I would say, like, I'm pretty close to uncancelable in that, like, people could stop listening to me. Uh, I could stop having a public outlet or whatever, but I've still got students and, like, still doing philosophy. Um, So one question about should we cancel is, like, first, who's cancelable, right? Mm -hmm. And I guess you're cancelable if you have some kind of public platform that is the condition on your being able to engage in whatever the activity is that you're engaging in, Right.
0: Right. Well I mean they could have they could have discredited Socrates so much that he wouldn't have been able to do philosophy it's that he had still had his fan base he still had people who wanted to listen to him
1: yeah but like for socrates it's like you know he doesn't seem to view being in prison as like being that bad right and people still come a couple people still come talk to him and talk to the guard um like um you know there's this um so 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 there's this question of like how much by way of external validation do you need to do the thing that you're doing?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And like it, I I sort of feel like a philosopher should be uncancelable in this in this in the following sense that you shouldn't have any status in the first place. So you shouldn't have anything to lose. Like mm-hmm. where other people, it's like, we trust, like Jordan Peterson, I think is eminently cancelable because he has these people who sort of follow him and believe in him and see him as an authority, right? And so at, at least one way to think about cancellation is like the removal of authority from somebody who, where the authority was the person's ability to speak. And I sort of think, I don't want that authority in the first place.
0: Mm-hmm. You're working on a project on Socrates. Can you tell me about that?
1: I'm still thinking it through, but the basic idea is that um, thinking is not something that one person does by themselves. Um, so we think we're, we sit here and like, you know, but I, I actually just think a lot of what we call thinking is like a bunch of random ideas going through your head in some weird order. It's a lot like dreaming. Nobody mm-hmm. would we call dreaming thinking, really. Um, But that thinking is something that real thinking is something we do with other people
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, because we are not, um, we're not very like aware of or in control of our own thoughts. It's kind of like a a mush, but when we talk to other people, they sort of hold us to standards. And so we be, we start to be able to make progress and to actually think. And I think that's what Socrates discovered he figured that out thinking as an activity.
0: That th- thinking's takes two basically. Yes. Okay. Yeah.
1: Um, and, and he created a kind of um, structure in which thinking could happen. Um, and, now I want to be like slightly more specific, it's thinking, it's a particular kind of thinking, it's thinking about the things that really matter. And so you might just say, yeah, that is thinking, right? Um, but that we have particular trouble thinking about the things that really matter to us. Um, and that the Socratic exchange is an attempt to think about those things. And so it's sort of, um, you know, a reading of a bunch of Socratic texts that bring out this kind of um, political character of thought.
0: OK, and so by political, you mean, it involves more than one person. Can you give me an example of how this works? Like, how do we, how do we think together? Is there a division of labor? Is a, you know What?: yeah. Are we, what are um,
1: doing? yeah, So the way that it works, what's crucial in a way about it is that it is not a debate. Um, Socrates was the most anti-debate philosopher. <laughs> um, so the crucial thing is that there is only one view under discussion, so that's the one thought. Because you need two people to think one thought. Okay. Um, and um, the view, like I'm say, articulating the view, and you're questioning it. So you're asking me about it. You're like, wait, do you think this? Do you think this? Mm-hmm. Um, and that is us thinking about this question. Um, and um, so Socrates, people had already been pretty good at doing the one side, being like, I know the way things are, and like essentially uh-huh. giving speeches. Right. So the, what, that's what they were good at, like giving speeches. And Socrates is like, OK, we'll do that, but just give a really short one. And then I'm going to say something and then you give another really short one. Um, and in, you know, in doing that, um, what he is doing is instead of just letting someone speak where their words can just go wander all over the place, he is holding their speaking to standards. And he's saying, wait a minute, here's the thing you are saying now. And you said this other thing before. You have to be consistent. Otherwise, you're not thinking. Right? Otherwise, you're just wandering. Mm -hmm. So the introduction of consistency is really to say, I'd like you to do this new thing called thinking instead of just talking. Um, um, And it's going to be about things like, do you Euthyphro really know that you're right to prosecute your own father for murder? We're going to talk about that one. Right. Um, So like the thing you least want to talk about in the whole world. Um, Uh Lakey's and Nicias. we're going to talk about. Euthyphro seem
0: kind of fine with talking about it.
1: Um. Yeah, I mean, the, there are moments, right, where he's like, where Socrates is like, so convince me in the way that you would convince the jury, and Euthyphro's like, oh, I'll convince him just fine, and Socrates yeah. is like, well, yeah, how exactly, right, so there are these kind of, you know, but Socrates is really good at getting people to talk about the thing they least wanted to talk about in the world, right, so Lekis and Nicias are like, should we send our sons to be in military training, and Socrates is like, do we know what courage is, right, um, so so, you know, Gorgia is like, do you know what, or you're an orator. Can you make a speech about oratory? Do you know what it is? Are you capable of speaking about oratory, Mr. Orator? Uh-huh. Um, How many so people eight- ask
0: you what's your philosophy when you tell them you're a philosopher on an airplane or something?
1: I've been dreaming of people asking me that, like, for so long. <laughs> because I have so many philosophies. And, like... And like whenever I hear philosophers tell that story of like people ask me what's yeah. my philosophy, I'm like, you don't know how lucky you are. I would love people to ask me what's <laughs> my philosophy. I have I have lots of them, but no one ever asks me what my philosophy you heard
0: is. You hear it here, listeners. Ask Agnes Callard what her philosophy is. Okay, sorry, go go on. Um,
1: um so um um so I think that what Socrates shows people is that it actually is possible to have a conversation about um this question that the answer to which they felt had to be presupposed in everything that they were doing
0: what socrates discovered is how we can think and how we can think is we can take one thought and i'll think it and you question it and together we're thinking it actually exactly i'll defend it and you will um and this is different from a debate and Look, I'm so glad you said that because that's sort of the thesis of my episode uh, on book one is like how crappy debating is and how you never learn anything from them. But so what is the difference between you making a point and me saying, are you sure? Isn't that wrong? Aren't you contradicting yourself? Because this sounds like a debate to a lot of people. So what's the difference?
1: Yeah, um, I think it really isn't a debate because um, the difference is that in a debate, you have your own view. You have your own positive view. So if we're debating capitalism versus communism and you're capitalism and I'm communism, then I have a positive thing that I'm putting forward. I'm not just anti-capitalist. I'm a communist, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, essentially, if you have a debate, you need a third party that is looking at the debate, right? Um, So, and we're both trying to convince that person. Um, um, So um, we each make a speech. It's like, you know, the speech in the Gorgias where Socrates says your method of persuasion versus mine, yours is the kind where, you need a judge. Right. Um, yeah. but I'm calling you as a witness, um, uh, polis. Right. So, um, I think that in a, in a Socratic conversation, the person you're trying to convince is the person that you're talking to, um, not a third party and, um, you know, what you're, um, you're either trying to convince them that you're right about your view if you're on the one side or that, they're wrong about their view. Um, But the thing that is being, the the thing that is being persuaded about is that one view that is being examined.
0: Uh Okay. So people have views and Socrates is helping them think them by questioning them and showing them what they're wrong about. But basically he proves everyone wrong. So do we ever learn anything from philosophy aside from we were wrong about everything that we ever thought?
1: Um you know, what Socrates says in the Gorgias is being refuted is the greatest favor that you can have done to you, right? Um, And it's not just learning that you're wrong, like he learned something more specific, right? Namely, the thing I just said. Um, So I think people learn all sorts of specific things. Um, I think, you know, um, people do often have this response like, well, but at the end, what do we have? And it's like, okay, the answer isn't all of human knowledge, We didn't get that at the end of the dialogue, right? And there's some sense in which if we don't have that, we don't have anything. Um, But I do think we learned those sorts of things. Like that was an example of something you learn in that dialogue.
0: Nice. So we can't trust philosophers and philosophers don't know anything, but by confrontationally telling us we're wrong, they can teach us specific things in dialogue and we can look forward to a more detailed account of how that works with Socrates in a book from you in the future. Yeah. I think that's a probably a pretty good place to leave it for today. And so I just want to thank you so much for coming on Good in Theory. Um, it was super interesting and a lot promoted. of
1: fun. Um, it was a really fun conversation.
0: Thanks, Agnes Collard.
1: Yeah, my pleasure.